0: John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory
1: hello Uh, welcome to the american writers 100 pages at a time podcast um so i have been uh you know i'm back to taiwan now and i have a a new job here and that has kept me from doing these recordings thankfully i had the baroque cycle all kind of laid out so i was working on that uh or i didn't have to you know i could focus on my job for a little bit uh and now I'm feeling ready to to start another new series. And I've the other thing I, I really couldn't decide where to pick up. I, I was kind of uh having anguish. I I threw out a lot of ideas towards the end of the Broke Cycle series. Um and I don't know, I just um you know, was thinking about different things. I am I, I am planning in the short term to to get to my mark twain series and do all six or i think it might be seven volumes of the mark twain uh collection put out by the library of america i also got want to come back to sinclair lewis i have main street which i actually started reading uh the, the mainstream Babbitt volume uh which uh, i started reading main street and i like that i have a lot to say about that um but you know i i didn't really know where to start and i, I decided to start with something uh that i've been reading a lot about in like my spare time and that's like the civil war era the reconstruction era i've been reading uh oaks's new book freedom national uh revisiting foner's uh, reconstruction um so with that i, I think I, I wanted to do this i decided i wanted to look into this civil war series that the library of america put together it's 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 gonna be a weird maybe not to talk about um uh you know it might be weirder, I guess, to kind of how to talk about this as I kind of upload them. What to what to call these different episodes and things like that. So, um, but but I'll, we'll give it a try. It's four volumes altogether. So there's basically one volume on each year of the Civil War. It's the first, second, third, and final year of the Civil War. Um, and it's, each is a collection of, of dozens and dozens of documents uh, throughout the Civil War from different points of view. And I that's one thing I really like about it. You're going to get northern and southern points of view. You're going to get battlefield points of view, home front points of view, pol- politicians' points of view, um, and all that. So it's a nice collection. It, I don't think it's a deep dive into the Civil War, or maybe not as deep as some of you might want or expect. If you know, But it's, I think... It can be a good introduction to to Civil War history and, and you're inevitably going to get perspectives and documents that you haven't like read before or come across before, even if you've studied U.S. history for as long as I have. Um, I've already just kind of just jumping into this already, uh, you know, maybe not learned that much that I didn't already know about, uh, you know, the secession crisis. But certainly documents I never read before and particular arguments laid out that I haven't um, that I, that hasn't been laid out before. Um, but now, obviously, because of just the nature of this anthology, we're going to get a lot of pro-slavery arguments. Um, I, you know, obviously, I don't think I need to constantly repeat that I disagree with those arguments. And I think, you know, the South was wrong for many reasons in the secession crisis, or at least the Southern leaders. Um, but I think it might be useful to to uh, go over these documents one at a time and and you know and see what they say and and, and just I'm I'm kind of excited because I'm I don't know what's ahead in the anthology actually they've been sitting on my shelf for a while and it, I think it was one of I think I got it when when I was subscribing when I was uh, still living in the U.S. and and occasionally I'd restart my subscription to the Library of America and they'd send volumes to uh, Uh, an address in the United States, and I would pick up like a dozen of them and then stop the subscription because I didn't want, you know, be flooded with books and had to manage my finances and all that. Um, But these came by subscription, I think. And eventually, Library of America, actually, when you subscribe to them, they'll they'll send you don't send stuff randomly i think they they focus on stuff that are newly published at the time so i think that's how i got these and they've just sort of been sitting on my shelf and they actually came one of the volumes came with a nice packet of of maps uh that go along with it they're not the not the easiest to read maps but they do show you the different fronts and the location of the battles and 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 stuff like that so it can kind of accompany that uh series but just skimming through it, we get a lot of different points of view. And I think that's what can be kind of exciting about looking at this. Overall, how long will it take? Um, the first volume is will be about seven episodes. They're not super long. I think they're all around 700 pages. So we can imagine probably three months of episodes to, to get through it. Um, so that, that's that's what we're going to do. And then after that, uh, I think I might be ready for, for the Mark Twain deep dive. Um, We'll see. The nice thing about Mark Twain is you're gonna have LibriVox recordings for all that stuff. So as I'm commuting, as I'm walking around, I can I can absorb a lot of the Mark Twain. But you know, for now, I'm going to take it easy. I guess this is kind of me taking it easy, I suppose. Uh, just reading these different documents and taking some notes about them. So, anyways, that's what's happening. So um, we start right with the not with the beginning of the Civil War, not like the first mustering and the first battles. Of course, the bull run battle was the first major battle. We instead start straight up with like the eve of the election. It's, it's, it's kind of a dramatic beginning of it. Um, as our witnesses, we can talk about them that way, the witnesses to the Civil War, um, you know, as we begin this story, and I know some will come up a lot uh, repeatedly, Lincoln, Sherman, um, you know, these kinds of people will come up a lot and we'll get a, little, a lot of their perspectives as it changes over the course of the war. Um, but, we, you know, it's right on the eve of the election. Now, I don't think, I don't know at the time, I'm sure people are always hopeful that their side will win. You know, I think if you just look back at the election of 1860, it's pretty clear that Lincoln was going to win. I guess the the would Stephen Douglas have taken enough votes from the Republican Party? That may have been the hope of the Southerners who supported Breckinridge. but it was pretty clear I think that none of the people who outside the Republican Party could build a national coalition, right? Because Breckinridge only had like the deep Southern states. Then you had the Constitutional Unionists. These were people who this was border state is is I forget the guy's name, but that was like border state candidate, and he he may have won a few states, but you know just in the border states, the people who were like maybe like Southern Whigs maybe supported that a little bit more. Of course, the Whig Party was gone, but the the old Southern Whigs. Then you had Stephen Douglas, who was the, uh, you know, the alternative. Maybe Northern Democrats, right, would have who were those who were that were left, would have supported him. And then you, have, of course, had Lincoln. And you know, if you just look at the map in hindsight, it's hard to see how any of those other candidates could have could have beat Lincoln um Lincoln of course won without any southern electoral votes and and in many cases no southern or very few southern votes at all right he wasn't even on the ballot in many states so maybe it it, it's it was clear that Lincoln had an advantage in this election but nevertheless we we pick up on the eve or or yeah right on the eve of the election on November 3rd um when some states had already voted but the outcome of the election wasn't Secure. It wasn't clear yet. Um, so we and we of course we have this long lame duck period in those days. So Lincoln would not be president till till March. So you have this four month period where secession begins, right? And that's it's a response to Lincoln's election. Lincoln didn't even do anything, right? When South Carolina and the other deep southern states seceded. Um, but what we start out here in this anthology is a bunch of documents, and I think we have thirteen in the first hundred pages or so. Uh, we got uh, we got the immediate pickup of the secession debate, right? So our first document, just to jump in, and and I, I think this is why I was hesitating to do this, is because it's like it's kind of like going back to the the Lovecraft letters stuff, um, and you know that was kind of, kind of so tedious about it is like you have a lot of these little documents and you can talk about them individually, but it's not like talking about a book. Or novel right which is kind of nice I loved Siri when I did the series like uh, the leather stockings tales you know even though I was kind of frustrated with those books from time to time and they are a bit old-fashioned you know you're kind of bit by bit going through this epic story right Um, five volumes each hundreds of pages and there was something kind of nice about that here you're gonna we're gonna get a lot of little documents and maybe my best approach would be to skip some that don't add much to our conversation But uh, to the degree I take notes, I'm going to talk about them. Um, So anyways, as I was trying to say, we start with a November 3rd, 1860 document, a a document coming out of the Charleston Mercury. A lot of these early documents are um, newspaper accounts, journalist accounts. And a lot of newspapers were partisan in the, well, I guess they still are to a degree, but maybe more partisan than we're used to in our newspapers. Uh, the news a lot more pushed by the editorial board, and the editor is having a big say in what comes out. Right. In fact, one of the newspapers we're going to look at was actually Frederick Douglass's newspaper, and it was just called like the Federal Douglass, the Douglass Monthly. I mean, he literally just called the news the newspaper was just called his own uh, by his you know by his name. I think that's after. Um, I, I'm not sure the history of that particular journal, but uh, maybe we'll look it up when we get to it. Anyway, so Charleston Mercury uh, was a pro-secessionist, pro-slavery document. Obviously, South Carolina being the hotbed of secession. Great place for this anthology to begin, actually. And we got Robert Barnwell Rhett Jr., who was the editor of it. And so this is basically his words for the most part. And his argument, and again, this is before the elections resolved. This is you know, prior to Lincoln taking office, prior to him even being declared a winner. Um, But everyone kind of saw the writing on the wall, I suppose. So we got November 3rd, 1860, uh, Robert Barnwell Rhett and the editors of the Charleston Mercury saying South Carolina should take leadership. Um, Why? Well, South Carolina is uniquely united uh, in its uh, goals. Uh, He also says we're at a revolutionary moment. And so he's almost kind of... uh, evil link, uh, evil lenin here kind of saying you know, we got what's to be done and we got to seize the moment we got to take the leadership um so yeah we could think of Rhett i guess as uh, maybe that's giving him too much credit but you know he's you you kind of see shades i suppose of an evil lenin uh, saying this is the revolutionary moment this is the moment we have to act and we have to take the leadership we have to be the vanguard if you want to use it that way and he says earlier is better. Why? Why should we act earlier? And he's talking about secession here, again, even before the election resolved. Why is earlier better? Well, um, he, he gives several reasons. One being the market for our goods is like our stuff is going to market now. So, you know, if we do it after we sell our goods, we'll have there won't be as much cash on the table. Uh, we won't have the same negotiating position. You know, this is still that Southern idea that runs throughout antebellum history and even throughout the Civil War, where the South said, you know, we're so crucial to the world economy, our cotton is, is, is this force of, this powerful force in the world market, and everyone will have to listen to us, right? That was the hope of British Alliance, right? throughout the wars. There's a, the British need our cotton. And if, obviously they didn't, uh, or at least they didn't have that as much need for it as Southerners like to claim. Oh, or, and even nationally, I was like, oh, the North can't survive without our cotton. Um, and again, they, they did. <laughs> they survived uh, just fine. Winning the war, actually. But that was the argument. And so this kind of this economic moment um, He also says there's sort of a moral effect of us taking leadership at this moment. Um, Other reasons why to act now? Well, the the Republicans can't govern yet. The Republicans won't be able to govern until March. So now you can prevent Republican policies from being put into place by threatening secession. Uh, Congress won't be able to pass force bills on us. Basically, you'll have this incompetent lame duck government and now's the time to do it. So he calls actually for a date. He gives a date for an assembly and a convention on December fifteenth. That's and that's close to when it happened. And what's useful useful about this document, I think, is it's it's actually what sort of happens, right? Is that um they use this lame duck period to push secession um before the Republicans can act. So it's you know, this is actually part of the plan. And as you know how secession went. There were these state conventions and these were dominated by the planter class. These weren't fully democratic. The Southern society wasn't democratic, obviously. Four million uh, slaves didn't have any represent. Well, they had, I guess, representation in Congress through the three fifths clause, but they didn't have any uh, actual voting representation, right? It was like, actually, the three fifths clause just gave the South more power in Congress. So it was like some kind of weird virtual representation that was totally against their interests as 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 people. Um not citizens, of course, due to the Dred Scott decision um previously. So um not Democratic that way, and of course, poor whites, who we'll talk about a little bit later in another document, they show up here. Um poor whites didn't really have much say, Unionists were suppressed. And shouted out, shouted down um, during this debate. Well, we will look at a Unionist voice from the South, but even he is kind of like, yeah, these Republicans are really dangerous. But maybe we can negotiate something. So that's his first document. So a really great place to begin is a this this super pro secessionist um, newspaper in the place secession begins. A very wise choice of the editor. The, the editors, actually. There's there's three editors. I think these might be the editors for the whole series. It's Brooke Simpson, Stephen Sears, and Aaron Sheen and Dean. I'm not really familiar with these historians. Um, but they may have edited the whole four-volume collection. Um, but we'll see. It doesn't matter. But they I think they made a good choice here. So the next uh, document we can look at is by John Jane Niccoli, another journalist. And this is just a memorandum about Abe Lincoln. Um and it's dated November 5th and 6th. These are, basically it's Lincoln's words, I suppose. But they're, they're things that were written down by this journalist uh, who was there. And so it's basically a record of a meeting between Lincoln and Henry S. Sanford. And Sanford was sort of saying, you really got to watch out. I mean, things are really not going well in the South. And so it's kind of Lincoln's response to this. Sanford's very worried about the secession, and he kind of says, maybe you need to listen to more reasonable voices in the South. And Lincoln's response is interesting. He says, and, and of course, this is kind of the the off the record notes, right, of this Nicol, Nicolay who overheard this conversation or was part of it. Lincoln just says, there are no kind of rational voices. There are no honest men in the South, uh, you know, which isn't kind of how he talks publicly about the South, I think. He has got that more compromising attitude uh, in some of his early pronouncements about the South, if you look at his first inaugural and things like that. but um, but he does say like at this point nothing can reassure them. and I think Lincoln is right about this. Uh, obviously that's that's the truth. I, as I understand it, um, there wasn't moderate voices that had the power in the South to stop secession at this point, point. Um, and the people who maybe could have or didn't want secession were were silenced or, or shut down um he says i've been saying throughout this campaign and i did a whole series on lincoln so you know i think this bears out if you look at what he's been saying is you know lincoln was at, was a clearly anti-slavery republican party was clearly anti-slavery this is the argument of Oakes in freedom national this relatively new book that came out where he says the republicans from day one were pushing anti-slavery policies. Uh, They just, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't come out of a reluctant Lincoln. It was, as some people have said in old-fashioned scholarship, he said, no, it was the end result, or the 13th Amendment, at least, was the end result of a series of of clearly anti-slavery policies. So it wasn't that Lincoln was reluctant, it's just that he was a politician, right, saying certain things to the South to try to reassure them and to prevent war and all that. But he's saying, what could I more say? What could I say? I I said, I'm not going to interfere with slavery where it exists. Uh, I'm against slavery in the territories, but no one's going to take away your slaves. Uh, You know, what more could he say? And I think he's right about that. He did. He was as he was as conciliatory towards the South publicly as public opinion would allow. uh, And his own voters would allow. Right. Remember, he's he's a Republican candidate. Um, So he's also got to be anti-slavery enough to build his coalition. Brilliant politician, by the way, obviously. Uh, great, our greatest president. Um, and he says, furthermore, I can't, how, if I lick the boot of these secessionists because they're throwing a hissy fit, I'm betraying my voters. Right. So a nice little, uh, it seems like, off the record kind of Lincoln moment. So next we got the New York Daily Tribune, uh, sometime in November 1860. It's Horace Greeley is kind of the voice of this. He's the editor of that newspaper. Uh, now this is an interesting document because he he actually starts with saying, "Oh, we've all lost elect. We know what it's like to lose elections. I really feel sympathy for you. blah blah blah. But kind of at the same time, yeah, you lost the election. Um, but he's got this kind of reconciliation voice um what's kind of interesting about this is he says let them talk disunity he's even open to secession and and i think that's something you know we look back now and we say you know in the republican party came out so strongly against secession you know and in the months in the during this crisis but there were you know people who talked about it even in the North, right? Like when there was this idea of a Southern slave conspiracy running Congress, uh, you know, some abolitionists say maybe we should opt out of, of the Constitution, right? And, and I guess Garrison sort of said that from the beginning, right? The Constitution is a pact with the devil. It defended slavery. So, yeah, fuck it. Um, so this idea of, I mean, it wasn't only Southern states talked about secession throughout American history, right? Uh, up to this point. But at the same time, he says it's really dangerous to, to do this. So he, I get this kind of sense that Greeley's saying here, you know, let them rant, let them talk their nonsense about secession. You know, maybe they have the right to do it, um, but it's going to be a stupid thing. So obviously it's it's against secession, but there's an interesting little kind of openness to uh, the possibility of secession. At least that's kind of a legal right, the right to it. Um, Here's what he says about this. We cannot perceive any necessary relation between the alleged disease and this ultra heroic remedy. Still, we say if anyone sees fit to mediate disunion, let them do so unmolested. That was a base and hypocritic row that the House once raised at Southern Dictation about the years of John Quincy Adams, because he presented a petition for the dissolution of the union. The petitioner had a right to make the request. It was the member's duty to present it. And now if the cotton states consider the value of the union debatable, we maintain their perfect right to discuss it. Nay, we hold with Jefferson to the inalienable right of communities to alter or abolish forms of government that have become oppressive or injurious. And if the cotton states should be satisfied that they can do better out of the union than in it. We insist on letting them go in peace. So a pretty uh, uh, interesting statement, given the history that comes after. But as we're going to see, some of the anti-secession voices have a response to this, right? Like, dude, yeah, you can secede, but you can't really because like half of the country, half half of this land is owned owned by the federal government, right? There's military bases owned by the federal government in your states. It's uh, not as and there's going to be other arguments too. That's not. i'm not saying that's the only one but certainly that's not insignificant part of this is like yeah this union once formed is kind of inseparable just because of of you know it's been fused together right like a like a, you know a bone may at one point have been broken but it gets mended and once it's mended you know you can't really break it again well, i guess you you know you could shatter it with great harm but it's it's intertwined. That's why I'm trying to think of like a biological metaphor here. It's, it's sort of become meshed together in many ways. Um, but Horace Greeley is kind of, I guess he's kind of being nice here um, uh, to Southern states. Um, the next document we have is Jeff Davis, Jefferson Davis, future president of the Confederacy. If uh, you want to use a president in quotes, I'm not sure, uh, You know, I guess the Republicans held there was never really secession was never legal. So Jeff Davis never was never really a president. But that aside, we'll just call him that. Um, So Jeff Davis to uh, Robert Barno Red Jr., the editor of the Charleston Mercury, who we just talked about. So this is not long after that original letter. And it's kind of a personal I think it's a personal uh, letter. I don't think it was published. So yeah, it's a personal letter to him. Maybe, maybe Rhett published it. Um, I'm not sure. I, I didn't look up the notes. For, there are notes in this book for every document. So I, I, I could know, but I'm not going to bother. Uh, the question is, was this published or not? Um, it doesn't matter. Um, what he says to Rhett Jr. Is, is... He's kind of trying to say what... How should we approach this? Secession? He's supporting secession, but he says it should be a unified effort and we need this unity before the convention. So kind of what Brett is saying is, let's go. Uh, South Carolina should go. And now's the moment to do it. And South Carolina should take the leadership. And I think Jeff Davis is saying, let's get all the other states on board, then hold conventions and and do it kind of as a united voice, which isn't how it happened. Right. Jeff Davis's plan here is not how it actually Fulfilled different states to their convention at different times, and it was kind of a a domino approach. In in a sense, Rhett was was right, I think, uh, in the, in the sense that secession did not did come after South Carolina's leadership, even though it was very rapid um, afterwards. There wasn't obviously the, the like Virginia and Tennessee; these states didn't secede until Fort Sumter. So, all right, that's that document. So next we have uh, Benjamin Hill. Um, this is this is interesting. Um, uh, this is November 11th. So again, we're don't sorry, November 15th. So this is right after um, the election, right? Days after the election, and that's just how fast secession came into motion. That there's already uh, the public debate, and Benjamin Hill is what we'd call. And I'm pulling this from the editor's commentary on this document. Uh, he's someone who would eventually vote against secession in Georgia, which that kind of convention took place in January um, of the following year. So a couple months after this. But he's given this public speech and he, he would vote against secession. But he's here, co- what gets called like a conditional unionist or conditional secessionist. These are the people who may have been pro-union, but after secession went along with it, right, and served in government of Southern states, served in the military. There's a, there's quite a lot of these, but they didn't do enough to stop secession, I suppose. But but he's one of these kinds of guys. He voted, I think, for the Constitutional Unionist Party, which you know, John Bell was the candidate there. Um, so he says, first, Lincoln and the Republicans aren't the problem, really. Uh, in fact, they haven't done anything yet. I mean, and he and that's kind of what Lincoln was saying, right? And... It's kind of what red is saying too like the republicans haven't done anything so we have to move now and benjamin hill is saying the republicans haven't done anything now hold your horses they might not do anything and maybe we can stop them from doing something but we can't if they're if we secede right um and here he's prescient in too i think a lot of these people i think maybe that's why these documents are chosen is because many of them are predictive of what would happen he says uh lincoln is not the problem rather it's anti-slavery sentiment in the north Uh, in general and the Republican Party may be the only thing that's stopping it this is you know how there's that really conspiratorial attitude north and south in the you know in the 50s you know southerners believed that abolitionists were running the Republican Party and running the Whigs or before that and were going to do anything they could to crush slavery that obviously wasn't true abolitionists were a small minority of the northern population and northerners who were even maybe racist and not abolitionists believed planters were running the government right and we can debate which was true i i guess i think closer to the mark were the northerners who were fearful of of southern power um but in any case he says this idea that anti-slavery sentiment is rampant in the north and it's going to Stop at nothing. Destroy slavery. It's not Lincoln. He kind of takes Lincoln at his word here um, in his public pronouncements during the election, but he does say this is what he where he's prescient, I think. And he says secession will end slavery, which it did, right? It took a war, but he does, He also says that Republicans sort of want disunion. So in this, he's he's not like blaming Lincoln himself. He's saying the Republican Party is coming out of this anti-slavery sentiment in the North and they are the ones pushing disunion through their reckless policies but we can stop them right um and he he says he he pulls up various things here for instance he says um uh like the england how england ended slavery and its colonies it's not really applicable to the u.s slavery is not really necessarily on its way out england depends on slavery so this was another common southern argument that not just hill shared but many secessionists shared but he's just Interpreting it a little bit differently, um, secession has said England needs our cotton so much and depends on slavery so much that they'll be forced to ally with us or recognize us. Hill's saying there's so much dependence on southern cotton that the that the Republicans can't afford to push disunion. They might talk that way, but they're they're, they're going to be limited by their their necessity to have um, their the necessity to have. What am I trying to say? To have cotton again, this idea that cotton is so important. He also says the Constitution defends slavery. Absolutely right. Um, And this is another point that James Oakes makes in Freedom National, is that the biggest problem for the Republicans in ending slavery was the Constitution itself, right? And that's why the Thirteenth Amendment had to be passed. The you know, what what started out as just a what the Founders may have thought of as a short-term compromise. Because many of them believed slavery was on its way out. They didn't realize the cotton gin would come and the expansion west and the whole that would entrench slavery um, in the United States. They didn't know that was happening. They thought these things like the fugitive slave law and the, you know, the discussing of the slave trade, all these things in the Constitution that in the three fifths clause, these things that explicitly defend slavery or at least acknowledge it uh, would become the biggest hurdle to ending slavery. Um, and Hill here is right. He says, look, the Constitution defends slavery. Um, and instead, so the Southerners should just demand a defense of the Constitution, not throw it out, which secession would do. Uh, and then he also makes a more practical argument that the South is simply not prepared for war. So this is a pretty interesting document. It's, it's one of the documents that I wasn't really aware of. Um, you know, I wasn't aware of these voices, I guess. And it's not just most of these documents I wasn't aware of. I uh, haven't read before, but I wasn't so much aware of uh, this kind of conditional secessionist, conditional unionist, anti-secessionist voices in the South, and and I'm, I'm sure, I was certain some existed, but I never read any of them, or was not aware of them, So this, and I didn't really come across your arguments before, so this is an interesting um, uh, point of view, I guess, the anti-secessionist pro-slavery southerner. Um, so next we have November 16th, uh, the New York daily news, um, on, uh, uh, on the right of secession, Um, and it's obviously in this, this right doesn't exist. Um, it's, um, it, let me find it though. Yeah, here it is. The right of the states to secede is the article. Um, this was a conservative newspaper, um, that supported Breckenridge, who was the uh, pro-slavery Southern Democrat candidate. So, I mean, a Northern newspaper, the New York Daily News, supporting this radical pro-slavery Southerner for president. Um, but it's opposed to secession. So, this is another really interesting voice that maybe you're not a that may, maybe many of us didn't think about that existed. Is that there was some pro-slavery voices in the in the north. I don't know its distribution of the New York Daily News. Maybe this was the New York journalists, you know, market marketing to the south. I don't know. Nevertheless, he says there is this permanent union, this perpetual union backed up by by the majority of Americans. It's a binding contract. So, quote, no, the, no decree of a court can dissolve the states as it can a corporation. The only power within is within the states themselves and a state Once a member of the Confederacy cannot secede without the consent of the others, the majority must rule. Um, And so despite its support of Breckenridge, its anti-secession, but I think what's interesting here is you hear this kind of appeal to the people in uh, Buchanan's last State of the Union, um, which (laughs) what a horrible time to give a State of the Union address, the annual address to Congress. When the Union's literally falling apart around you and you you have to give the State of the Union. Uh, that was his job. Not a very good president by all accounts, but uh, I just think it's hilarious that he had to give this, a State of the Union at this moment. Uh, the worst possible <laughs> time. But he, uh, uh, but this appeal to the people, that's, that's what he says. He's sort of like, don't think of the party as like, there's some, this idea that there's some kind of American spirit wanting to hold the country together when I'm not sure that that existed in the South. I I mean, it's kind of a fantasy, I suppose. We'll talk about that when we get to Buchanan's uh, document. But still, it's saying don't secede. Um, So next we have Sam Houston, November 1860. Sam Houston uh, is another anti-secessionist Southern voice. He's, of course, very important figure in Texan history, pro-slavery person, but he wants to keep Texas in the union. Um, and he originally, um, he was the governor, right? So he didn't want to hold this convention, but eventually they held it anyways. And so, you know, it, it, eventually they was sent to popular vote. So the way it worked, they did their convention without the consent of the Texan government. Um, And then the secession ordinance was sent to like a a referendum um, and three to one margin. It was approved. Um, Of course, obviously, black men could not vote in that that election. Um, And then Houston eventually was kicked out of office when he refused to accept that. Um, But obviously, so we would expect a pro-union document here. And that's exactly what we get. And he makes the arguments, sort of what he'll like don't abandon the Constitution. It's, you, you don't throw it out because that's not only defending what you want, which is slavery. It's, it's kind of our identity in a way. And he says nothing will really be gained by, by secession. Um, you can also imagine, you know, he fought so hard to make Texas part of the United States not that long ago. So you can imagine his frustration at uh, Texans so qu- quickly trying to throw throw out, um, th- throw out the Constitution, throw out the the Union. But you, I guess you see in this, just like um, what's his name, that other guys that uh, no, the New York Daily News is it kind of appealing to the. Idea of the people. You have Houston appealing to the Constitution. That's another common appeal people people uh, gave during this debate. Uh, I guess on both sides, uh, the Unionists more than the other side, obviously. But this idea that the that the Constitution is, you know, something that's unifying us. Um, I guess that's more solid than the this more amorphous idea of the people or of some kind of hidden majority, silent majority kind of thing. But anyways, our next document here is um, George Templeton Strong's diary. He was a northerner, New Yorker, um, and I think he'll going to show up a lot because we have his like journals, his diaries from the war. Um, just a lawyer. Um, he was kind of, but he was, uh, he was the treasurer of the U.S. Sanitary Commission during the war and they helped found the Union League. So he's not a major figure. But um, I think he show, he'll show up a lot because we do have his, his diaries. <clears throat> um, what, 25 years his diary is. So a Whig turned Republican. So he's, a, he's, a, he's one of those. Um, but anyways, he's he's given his personal views. And he's, he's coming off as kind of a pessimist about secession. He's going to be like, Sherman's going to be the same way. Sherman's going to have a very different point of view, though, because he's in the South at the time. But he has this fear of secession being like a rising tide. And, um, you know, he certainly is kind of he's, he's fatalistic for a couple of reasons. One is he, he calls the ruffians of the South are going to push secession. And then the northern government is just so fully corrupt. I, I don't know if he's talking about the Republicans here or the Buchanan um, government. I think it's probably that that he's talking about a little bit more. Um, what does he say here? He says, uh. The fugitive slave law stimulated sectional feeling by making slavery visible in our own communities and above all the intolerable brag and bluster and indecent arrogance of the South has driven us into protest against their pretensions and into a determination to assert their own rights in spite of their swagger. You know, the fugitive slave law comes up a lot here, of course, um, because, of course, that's part of the justification for secession is that the northern states aren't defending are actually the disunionists because they're not following the Constitution and the law by not enforcing the fugitive slave law and I think some northern states actually passed the state laws to essentially nullify the fugitive slave law towards the end um, at least that's what some of these southerners were saying I don't know the details on it at the state level but the idea at the very least a lot of localities weren't enforcing it and it was like oh you're the real disunionist here you're the real secessionist because you're not following law but that their response to this is to throw out the constitution altogether you know kind of betrays that argument i think but that's also where people like hill and houston are coming from it's like this is the rock we stand on if we really actually want to enforce defend these rights these you know their right to own other people <clears throat> and to go into free states and drag uh, you know people back into slavery if that's what you want to fight for i guess I, I guess that's what they wanted to fight for but my point is, on the one hand, they're saying, let's back out of this Constitution. On the other hand, oh, you should really enforce the law. Um, all right. Next, we have uh, another diary, a very different point of view. Edward Bates, uh, this diary entries from November 22, 1860. Now, he's interesting. He was a Republican from Missouri, a former congressperson. He actually ran against Lincoln in the in the primary Um, but only didn't get only only got like ten percent of the vote in the first ballot at the convention. Um, and he's he's saying basically the war is going to cost so much for both sides. Um, it's going to be horrible. And since he's predictive, another document that I think is quite predictive. Maybe not as boldly stated as Sherman does, but still true. Um but he he thinks secession is bluster. That that's where I think he's wrong here and obviously history is going to prove him wrong. He, he thinks secession was just bluster for a better compromise. And and maybe there's an argument to be made that first argument document we looked at is kind of saying that uh the rat junior the the was it the South Carolina newspaper saying let's push now, maybe we can get a better deal. But he says it's it's probably that's all it is. I think that's where Bates is maybe wrong as he thinks that's all it really is. But at the same time he says that may be all there is But it's going to cause disunion and eventually war And and he actually At one point in the diary And this is of course not a public proclamation This is just his musings in his diary He says maybe it's better to have war now um, And get it over with If it's coming Well next we have uh, a I guess this is a letter uh, William Brown Brownlow To R.H. Appleton um, and he was the uh, so Bronlow was the editor of the Knoxville Whig. And basically, this uh newspaper, so someone wrote in and uh, so some guy, I guess it was Appleton. So this was published, this was published in the newspaper. And this guy, Appleton, wrote in like, I'm not just subscribing from your newspaper, secession forever, or some nonsense like that. And secession now and forever is what he said. Um, And he's speaking, this guy is trying to speak for the Methodists of South Carolina. Um, And of course, the Methodist and Baptist churches both split along sectional lines at this time, right? And they're to some degree, and they're still the Southern Baptist um, group. So those those breaks are still there. Um, But he's a unionist, of course, and he's writing to a secessionist. And he makes a really good point-by-point breakdown of the secessionists' arguments and why they're wrong. Now, he's a unionist, so he's not an abolitionist. And he's not. So he does say the Constitution just defends slavery, slaves as property, and abolitionists are wrong. So he is kind of covering himself from the the radical arguments here, which obviously is not, not uncommon at this time. Abolitionists were still in the minority, but he does make a good point by point breakdown of this of why secessionism is is not legal. Um, you know he says for you know one thing is like funds from all the states are part of the federal government uh, a lot of government property in the seceded states so you could secede but what about all the federal property lands arsenals fortresses and of course we, we got fort sumter around the corner and we know what the solution to that was in many cases was just seizing it right the idea that the North was the aggressor is just wrong because Southern state governments after secession seized all this federal property. They were, and, the, and Lincoln did not respond to that by calling up 75,000 troops. I mean, it wasn't until Fort Sumter that it happened. So if anything, Lincoln showed restraint uh, toward in, in the face of Southern secessionist violence towards federal property. Um but he, he 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 makes some good arguments here and, and just like It's not really a sustainable thing If secessionists can just Secede at will Whenever they don't like a federal government Then there's not going to be a union at all It's it, it, And you wouldn't get No one would lend the U.S. money And, and he goes through all the Pretty good arguments uh, Why secessionism uh, Doesn't really make any reasonable sense It's not reasonable and it's not legal um, But not the most compelling of the documents in our collection today. Next, we have a really interesting one, Frederick Douglass. Uh, this is December 1860. So we're about a month after Lincoln's election. And this is his appraisal. This is in a newspaper called the, the Douglass Monthly, um, an abolitionist journal. And I don't know when he started it or how long it was, because, of course, he had the North Star before this. I don't know what happened to lead him to start this one. It was just some break with the abolitionists, um, possibly. So actually, Douglas didn't support Lincoln in the election. At least, uh, at least he voted. I guess he was in a safe state, so he was making he was voting like third party. But he voted for uh, Garrett Smith, who was one of the the people who funded John Brown's raid. If you remember the the Secret Six, or whatever. But he ran on the, abo- the remnants of the abolitionist um, party. There was, of course, the Free Soil Party, and then that's a lot of that gets absorbed into the Republican Party. And there were still some remnants though, and they ran. And he didn't get many votes, but. One of the votes he got was Frederick Douglass, so bravo to him. Uh, That's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, If one person votes for you and it's Frederick Douglass, uh, not too bad. So, of course, he didn't vote for Lincoln, but he does reappraise Lincoln at this point, and he's not unhappy that Lincoln won. I think he knew that Smith wasn't going to win. So he says slavery was central to this election, which uh, is true, um, even if it was denied by some people at the time. And he says Lincoln's not a cause for secession. I mean, you're going to secede over this guy who Douglas had doubts would fall through on on an abolitionist anti-slavery policy or policies. Um, But nevertheless, he does think the 1860 election was a gain for the anti-slavery position because it raised awareness of anti-slavery positions. He calls it like the anti-slavery canvas is expanded. Um, at the same time, though, he thinks the Republican is, Republicans will be more or less tend towards weakness on this. But that just means we have to keep up pressure on them. So this is an abolitionist response to, to Lincoln's election. Um, not really touching on the question of secession so much, but, but more on just what can we do to continue to push Lincoln where and the Republicans where we want them to be in terms of anti-slavery. So next, we have a couple letters. From Sherman to uh, his, well, two letters, uh, and they're just just—they're both written on the same day, so they're put together here, it's, but they're two separate letters. One to his father-in-law, um, uh, what was that guy's name again, Irwin, or Enwin, or Ewing, Ewing, Thomas Ewing, and the other two is his brother, so, um, you know, he married, Sherman married his, uh, his foster uh, sister. Um, so he had a really close relationship with Ewing, who, who essentially raised Sherman. Um, and of course, at Sherman at this point, he had, he had left the military and he, he, he had done other things. And he came back to work. Um, what was he? He was running, he was superintendent of the Louisiana State Seminary and Military Academy. So he's a federal government employee running a military academy in Louisiana at a time during the secession debate. So he's got a really good ground-eye view of secession and of course he's got a lot in his mind like if i quit i'm not gonna have a do i have a job what if secession doesn't happen and i quit do i wait he thinks is gonna happen though he's pretty clear this is probably gonna happen but at the same time he doesn't want to really do anything because a lot of it's about his personal life like what actually should i do should i leave now should i if i if they secede do i have time to leave what about my wife um so he's got a lot of these personal concerns and he's sharing them with, with Ewing. Um, but basically he thinks Louisiana is moving towards secession and war is inevitable and Louisiana will follow Georgia. So the two letters kind of say the same sort of stuff, but it's different audiences. The Ewing one says a little bit more about his wife and, and he kind of says maybe I'll have to leave her here and I'll go. Anyways, he's got these concerns, uh, personal concerns. Uh, but it's a nice um, a nice couple letters that basically show he, he said at one point, Uncle Sam is a sick man. I mean, he's basically saying the country's broken and and what he sees in Louisiana. So it's a it's this northern view of of secession as it's happened in Louisiana. And he thinks, like many people in these documents are saying, it's like it's a, it's a wave that's happening. Um, our next document takes up a big chunk of this section, but I'm not going to say too much about it because it's it's just a hilarious uh, idea that James Buchanan has to give the State of the Union. I mean, he was such an incompetent president, and he... He didn't do anything as the country was burning around him. Literally, war was war started right in Kansas. Um, but it's the it's the last uh, it's his last State of the Union, last um, annual address to Congress. And I just what I want to say here is um, obviously he, he's wrong about so much here. He like he says states are wrong not to enforce the Fugitive Slave Law when in fact they were absolutely right not to enforce it. But He talks a lot about the rights of Southern states. He's a Democrat, right? So he's, that's part of his constituency. And you can tell he's bowing down to them. You know, Lincoln compromised for political reasons too, but he was always on the right side of history. And he always had the right goal at the end. Buchanan doesn't. He's just a a political hack. Um, I haven't read a biography of him. So maybe there's some historian out there who's got a different view of him. But everything I've read suggests that he was um, his hands was tied by the the Democratic Party, which didn't really know how to handle this crisis, you know, the breakdown along sectional lines of the party. But the weirdest, he does think secession is a tragedy. At the same time, he thinks the federal government have, should do more to enforce the fugitive slave law and states shouldn't nullify it or whatever. Um, but what's weird about this document is he constantly is like surrendering his own political will and leadership to this amorphous people and he does it again and again in this document um, so even though he's like talking about states rights he, his only hope is really that there's again this kind of silent majority of reasonable people that are going to you know basically do what the southern states want and you know the anti-slavery forces will just shut up and and the nation can go forward but you know, I just don't think that existed at the time. May, you know, there's nothing wrong, I guess, on the surface of appealing to the people. But if you're doing it to surrender your political agency and surrender your leadership and just be kind of a douche, then I don't know how I feel about that. It's it's kind of misusing the concept of the people too. And when the people are divided, you can't make that same kind of kind of claim. And there is kind of an authoritarian. Uh, baggage to this idea of oh the people let's let's follow the will of the people um, so basically he recommends con and then you know how these addresses always have a list of what congress should do uh, he has that here but basically it's a list of congress congress should basically give in to southern wishes so outside of the hilarity of the document existing i guess and this i don't know did he give this speech in person i know a, some people, I guess they did at that time, right? Maybe, maybe Jefferson maybe sent them in by, by, you know, to be read. But I think by the time of Buchanan, it was an actual address they were given. Must have been wild. All right, two more. Two more and we're done. Um, next, we got J.D.B. DeBow. Um, so his newspaper is called the DeBow Review. And this was a Southern... Uh, pro-slavery journal Um, I guess I got some more details about it if I can find where it begins Um, the DeBau review what was it it doesn't matter oh he's the editor of the DeBau review but this was published in as a pamphlet um, in South Carolina and it's it's really a fascinating document because it, it's an argument for slavery. It's a defense of slavery. So it's not a pro-secession document. It's in the secession debate, but it's a pro-slavery document. And I think this is important, <coughs> excuse me, because it's a reminder that um, the these conventions were about slavery and defending slavery. Right. And the appeal to Southern audiences was a defense of slavery. It wasn't a legalistic argument about states' rights so much. Uh, maybe some people that it was appealing to, but your your average uh, southern secessionist was, in, was worried about slavery ending, right? That's what it was all about. Um, and so this argument targeting the non-slaveholders of the South. And he... he so... He's got some really he's got an interesting approach And f- for for one thing, you know, this idea that I think some people might still have still have and still say when they talk about the South, especially if they're like Southern apologists. They'll say like, oh, only a handful of Southerners were actually slaveholders. Right. It was like a handful of big planters. And, you know, most people didn't have slaves. And Dabao say no. Dabao is proud of the fact that so many Southerners have slaves. He says. Two million. So, in order, so, so the population of the South is what? Thirteen million? No, sorry, that's the wrong number. It's uh, I, I think I, I think I added I think it was nine million, and I added the four million slaves or three point five million slaves to get like thirteen million. Actually, nine million was the total population of the states that seceded. Maybe if you add uh, Kentucky, Missouri, uh, Maryland, Delaware, you get uh, you get more. But yeah, uh, nine million. Uh, of course, f- three point five million of those were slaves, or around four million of them were, were slaves. So, five million uh, whites, um, and then there was a free black population there too. He says, "Oh, two million are slaveholders." Now he adds up. He not not it's not that two million people literally own slaves. It's he added up the family, right? You know, so he took a family and uh, grouped them together, and he kind of has a formula for doing that. He's kind of a he. I think he did a lot of the guy who wrote this did a lot of statistical research and stuff in his journal. It was more like an economic journal. It sounded like that way, anyways. Um, so he's really proud of these, like most, or maybe not most, but a huge chunk of the South are slaveholders. So it's a very, in a hair-invoked democratic way, it's a, it's a, it's a democratic institution in that many people benefit from it. And then he goes through kind of some arguments that are pretty you know, well-known, we've heard these before, eh, about why slavery is good for the non-slaveholding whites. Some of these arguments are really bad and I guess oft-repeated arguments, like, you know, we don't have cities down here, so we don't have any of those smelly prostitutes walking around. and We don't have any of this kind of like sewers. We have the beautiful, you know, magnolia fields and all this baloney. You know, that's what pro-slavery people have been saying for a long time, is that we are not corrupted by industrialization. We don't have foreign populations to compete with. uh, We just have good ethical Americans and all this. He even makes one weird argument that I've never heard before. I don't know if the numbers pan out, but he says wages were higher in the South than the North for non-slaveholding whites. But the argument gets kind of wild later on. One point he makes is basically non only whites benefit from whiteness. I mean, anyone who wants to deny like the arguments of of whiteness scholars who say like there's a psychological like the wage of whiteness ar- idea that there's a psychological benefit. The arguments made by um, Edmund S. Morgan in American Slavery, American Freedom, or in roediger's and the Wages of Whiteness, it. I mean, he's basically admitting it here. That's like you're benefiting because you're white, and you you know that's itself is a benefit if you. Don't have slavery, you don't have that same kind of whiteness wage. Uh, what else do you say? Oh, you're going to become slave owners too. It's like this rising tide kind of idea. It's like oh, eventually you'll own your own plantation. And he and he makes another argument, which I think is probably backed up because I've seen this in historical research. It's like a lot of the plantation owners weren't didn't inherit their plantations and their slaves. They, you know, they worked their way up. You know, and as they made money, they invested in more slaves They got big. A lot of them were first generation people. I think um, maybe it's James Oaks again. His book about the southern economy may have made that case. But certainly it's I've read this in literature on the Antebellum South is that there was this kind of upward mobility for whites into the slave owning class. It wasn't uh, an entrenched uh, aristocracy. So he's right. So he, I think this. Pans out. And he's, but he's using this as an appeal to the non-slave holding white saying, just wait. Eventually you'll get a slave of your own. And it won't take that long. You save a few a few years wages. You save for a couple years from your wages. You can buy a slave too. Um, many slave owners start as non-slave owners. Uh, he says, oh, if not, you don't get it, your children will. Right. This this same... Thing you we hear throughout American history about how each generation is going to do better than the next. Don't critique the system, even if you have it bad, because you know things are getting better for you. Um, and then he says this weird argument that non-slaveholders are important in Southern politics and industry, and you know, we have a place for you in so- Southern culture and Southern society. Um, slavery contributes to the general prosperity of the South. If you take away slaves, we're all going to be poor from it. He says, look what happened to Haiti. Haiti was a prosperous colony with slavery and then they got their independence and they become a backwater. Um, I don't know how that pans out. I mean, Haiti for most, under French rule, was not prosperous for most Haitians. Most, like 90% of them were slaves. So, you know, I don't buy that argument, but he makes it, it's it's an interesting one anyways. Because I think people looked at Haiti as maybe an example of, of why why slavery shouldn't end and he says ending slavery will harm poor whites he doesn't really have an argument for that just saying if all the rest is true then ending slavery would be bad for you so he his argument comes from various directions and it's something we've we hear so much in American history and other contexts you know when when people are critical of the system people uh, others will throw out and say oh you just got to wait look how poor people were a hundred years ago if you just you look, at which, look how rich poor people are in America That kind of thing. It's like this, you're in constant prosperity and so you shouldn't complain if you don't have a big pie yourself. But then he's very unabashed. Like the goal is like all... I think he basically seems to be saying the goal is all Southerners will one day have slaves. So anyways, that's the argument. Really, really fascinating. I think this was maybe the most interesting read in this selection for me. Um, Then we got... uh, Our last one, Joseph E. Brown to Alfred H. Colquitt and others. Um, Joseph E. Brown uh, was governor of Georgia. And so this is a very, very important uh, document in the lead up to the secession conventions. And it's a pro-slavery article published in the newspaper. Um, And he says the winds are moving towards abolition. Um, he says, we have to do this because abolition will be a disaster. Who's going to compensate the slaveholders? Um, southerners. Uh, he he says he's still thinking, not in an abolitionist way, but maybe in a moderate way, that, you know, this um, compensated emancipation idea that was floated around. He says, well, where are the money coming in that form? It's going to come from us. You're just going to tax Southerners to pay, you know, off. So it's you're robbing Peter to pay Paul in a way. And in and and doing so, destroying the southern economy. But there's a lot on class here. There's a lot of like interesting class uh, politics here about, you know, how the end of slavery will hurt the poor whites. Um, and so, similar to the previous argument, both this and the previous one both make an appeal to the poor whites, or at least the non-slaveholding whites, to say, "You're." You're benefiting as much. And if you're thinking about war and you've got a population of of less than 10 million whites, only some of them who can fight, you want everyone on board. Right. And so they're they're laying the groundwork for this population, which they know will be problematic and it would be problematic for the war. Right. It would be a big source of, of resistance to the southern war effort would be lower class whites resist, you know, desertion. Unionists in some parts of the South, West Virginia, Eastern Tennessee, places like that. So this is uh, tr- very much like the DeBow piece, trying to argue for um, the, the, the benefits slavery gives to, to the poor whites. Um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I got a bit of a cough here. Um, so the next uh, set of documents... I'll look at it in the next episode. I'm done for now. Um, like as always, I'm going to do about a hundred pages at a time here, which should be easier to space up because there's so many documents in these books. And I'm having a lot of fun. I think this is really fun to talk about. Um, the next set will take us at least to Davis's inauguration, so up to the creation of the Confederate States of the so-called Confederate States of America um, around March 1861. So, um, so the Really, the, I guess the focus will be on the secession conferences and all that. Um, so who are we going to hear from? Let me, let's, let me just look. John Kreitiden, uh Henry Adams, um, Abner Doubleday, uh, reminiscence of Fort Sumter. Uh, the South Carolina Convention's De- Declaration of the Causes of Secession. Herman Melville um, on, the, on, the, on the secession. Uh, Jefferson Davis' farewell address to Congress, Robert E. Lee, Um, more Frederick Douglass. Any women here? Yeah, Catherine Edmondson. We haven't heard from a woman yet. So I hope this uh, anthology doesn't forget women. Oh, here we got Sullivan Ballou farewell letter. Uh, That's nice. Um, Anyway, it's great stuff coming up. So I hope you're digging this as much as I am. I'm certainly enjoying this. We'll see how it is in 20 episodes when I get towards the end. But so far, I'm having fun. So anyways, thanks for listening. If you have any comments about anything I've said or complaints about how I said it, um, send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com or contact me on Twitter. Um, I will uh, see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening. They hanged him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew, his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, glory.